Well, this is, this is the end of our sermon series on the life of Paul. So over the last like, couple of months, we've been looking through the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, and today we get to the end of it. And I was, as I was thinking about the end of things through the last couple of weeks as you know, we were preparing for this morning, it reminded me of a time when I was in college and I was doing kind of this discipleship program with an older man at my church, and he invited me to meet him in a cemetery one week. I thought, well, this is going to be a little different, but okay, I'm all about it. So I showed up at the cemetery, and he told me, just take 20 minutes and just walk around. Like, no agenda, just walk around, look at stuff. And as I was walking around, I noticed on the headstones that people had how they wanted to be remembered on them. Things like uh, father, or husband, or, you know, servant, or a scripture verse, right? All kinds of different things. And it made me think about the way people want to be remembered. And that's often the case with their last words, right? Have you heard that expression for famous last words? So people's, the last thing they say is often, you know, the, the way they're remembered. So I have a couple examples of some famous last words for you this morning. Uh, James Donald French was a murderer who was executed by electric chair. We're starting this with a light one. I'm keeping it light. <laughs> Convicted murderer, executed by electric chair. Allegedly, his last words were, he looked at the reporter in the room and said, how's this for your headline? French fries. Allegedly, that was his last words. Okay, Groucho Marx, who was actually a comedian, tried to be funny. Um, his last words were, die? Well, that's the last thing I'll do. And then, allegedly, died of pneumonia. All right, Martin Luther King, we don't know what his actual last words were, but the civil rights leader, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate, his final public words were along the lines of, I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And the next day he was assassinated. And Mother Teresa, a Catholic nun, also Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, she devoted her life to serving the poor and the sick in the name of Jesus. And her final words were simply three of them. I want Jesus. She died at age 87 after founding the Missionaries of Charity, right, a religious order, a Catholic order that operates in over 100 countries today. The way that we end things, the words that we end things with are often important. They represent, usually, what our life was all about. And throughout this sermon series, we've been studying the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And we get to the end of it, Paul's final words. And these words here at the end of his life, they're the last things he says, the final letter he writes before he was martyred for the cause of Jesus. And in this passage, we come to one of the most stirring things he writes. Paul gives his final charge to Timothy, his protege, a man he refers to as his son. Here, Paul reflects on his own life and his final reward. Now, the passage, it's not just relevant for Timothy, and it's not just relevant for pastors or for missionaries. It's relevant to every Christian who wants to live a life that counts for eternity. It's relevant for me. It's relevant for you. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the, the scripture together this morning. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes 
to the glory of your word and to the glory of your son in this passage. I ask that you would give me the ability to preach it faithfully and that in all of us you would stir up a holy passion to live for your name, to live for your cause in this world until we see you face to face again. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, our passage this morning is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So you're welcome to use a Bible app if you've got one on your phone. You're welcome to use a physical Bible if you have one with you. If you're not sure where it is, it's towards the back, but you can always, as Pastor David regularly says, the table of contents is there for a reason. You can use it to find where it is if need be. Uh, So 2 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 8 together, and then we're just going to kind of briefly talk about the rest of it at the end, but we're going to read verses one through eight. So this is what it says. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside the myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Now the rest of chapter four goes on with some specific instructions and information for and to the people that Paul had encountered and done ministry with along his life. Um, But all of chapter four really kind of neatly breaks into three key pieces. First, Paul gives a charge to Timothy. Second is about the final reward that Paul anticipates. And third is the send-off, Paul's farewell and final instructions to the people that he's loved and served. So we'll look at each of those three parts this morning and talk about what they mean for us today. So first, Paul's charge to Timothy. Let's read verses one through four again, where that charge happens. So in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside the myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Notice how Paul begins this charge with a solemn appeal to God in Jesus Christ in verse one. Right, he says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul's like setting the stakes. He's laying the stage. He's saying, Timothy, this, this isn't just my opinion. This isn't my advice to you. 
This is God's command. This isn't trivial. This isn't optional. This isn't a minor thing. This is core and essential to living for Jesus. This isn't temporary. This isn't earthly. This isn't going away. This is eternal. This is a heavenly issue. You are accountable to God. You are accountable to Christ Jesus, who sees everything that you do and say, who will judge everyone at the second coming, who will establish his glorious kingdom that will never end. So listen carefully and obey what I am about to tell you. And even the language that Paul uses, the language itself, right, that Paul uses has immediacy to it. The grammar he chooses lends itself to urgency. There is no room here for hesitation, for delay. Jesus is coming soon. And this command that God has placed upon all of us is of the utmost and highest importance. So what is that charge? Well, Paul says it clearly, and it's pretty simple. Preach the word. That's it. That is the essence of Paul's charge to Timothy. Preach the word. Preach the word of God. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preach the scripture that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Preach the truth that saves sinners and sanctifies the saints. Preach the word. But what does it mean to preach the word? Well, fortunately for us, Paul explains it in four different ways. First, he says, be prepared in season and out of season. That means at all times, every time, no matter when. The faithful servant must preach the word when it's popular and when it's convenient and when it's not. When it feels appropriate and comfortable to do so, and when it seems unwelcome. Right? The edicts of our culture, the opinions of our times, tradition, reputation, acceptance, right? these can't be criteria that might cause us to stray from the aim to proclaim God's word truthfully. The charge means to seize every opportunity and overcome every obstacle to share the good news about Jesus. Second, Paul says, it's to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And that means to use the word of God as a tool for building up God's people. And to do that, we need to expose error. We need to confront sin. We need to encourage each other to live in accordance with the will of God. Right, the Greek word for correct that Paul uses refers to both thoughts and behavior. We need to rightly know God for who he really is, and we need to faithfully walk in the way that he leads us. It means to not shy away from hard or controversial or unpopular parts of the word, but to speak them with wisdom, with love, and with gentleness. It means to not just tell people what is wrong, but also what is right and how to get there patiently. If you're here in person this morning, or you've, you've come in the past, you've probably seen my three little red-headed boys running laps around the sanctuary at the end of church most weeks. Well, my oldest, I could probably give him a snack and a book and tell him to sit in the front row during the service, and he would sit there faithfully, quietly, and obediently the whole time. Now, my second child, I could do the same thing. I could give him a snack and a book, and I could ask him to sit, and he would give it his best try. But probably after about five or ten minutes, he'd get distracted. And then at that point, he'd probably come find me and tell me about his snack. And when I reminded him, hey, buddy, you're supposed to be sitting and be patient, he'd start to cry because he'd be upset that 
he remembered that he didn't do what he was asked to do. Very sweet boy. Uh, but my third child, whew, now that boy can only be described as a typhoon of chaos. Like, I cannot even begin to tell you the stories that we have about him. <laughs> well, last Sunday on Father's Day, it was just him and I awake in the morning. I was making him breakfast. And while I was making his breakfast, I heard the whiz-bang of a water bottle being thrown in the other room, which is expressively forbidden in the Selker household. There's no throwing water bottles. And so I was, I was thinking about this story. I was thinking, you know, if you'd asked me before I became a parent what like my top five rules for raising my kids would be, not throwing water bottles would not make that top five list. But now that I am in like the thick of it, in like year six of raising children, that is absolutely a top five rule in our house. No throwing water bottles. Well, he, he chucks this water bottle. Water gets everywhere. So, it's a hard way to start the morning, but I'm filling up his milk cup. I stop, I set the milk down, I go grab the towel out of the kitchen, and I start cleaning up his water bottle. No, thank you, buddy, we don't throw water. And while I'm cleaning up the milk, or cleaning up the water, I hear the crash of his milk cup being pulled over in the kitchen and milk now being all over the counter. And part of me is like, okay, one, that's kind of on me because I probably should have put the lid on the sippy cup before I walked away from it. But I'm also a little irritated because also a top 10 rule is don't pull stuff off the counter at our house. So I take that towel, I go back into the kitchen and I'm cleaning up the milk and trying to lower my blood pressure and just giving them the firm, you know, no, thank you, we don't do that. And while I'm cleaning the milk up, I hear the stomp, stomp, stomp coming from the other room and I look up and I see him standing on top of our kitchen table, jumping up and down. Well, after pulling him off the table and catching my breath, I realize he doesn't just need to be told what not to do. He needs me to tell him what he needs to go do. So I tell him, buddy, I want you to go into the drawer and get a spoon. Go back to, your t go back to the table and sit in your seat with your bottom in your chair and wait for me to bring out your breakfast. And he did, right? No more thrown water bottles, no more dance parties on the table. He was able to follow through with the expectations that dad had for breakfast. And it's, it's a silly story, right? But in like my inner person, I am like him. And I think all of us are, right? It's, it's essential for us not to just to tell people, don't do that, no thank you, but to also tell them what's right, to lead them in the, the steps that they need to take. And to tell them patiently, to tell them plainly. The third way that Paul explains to preach the word means to be aware of the times and trends. So in verse three, Paul warns, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, the words that are translated as not put up with could literally be translated as will not tolerate. All right, this is a warning of dangerous messages that distract us from the beautiful and hard and enduring truth of who Jesus is, what he has done, and who he has made us to be. Paul is warning not to be naive or ignorant of the context in which we live, but preach the word, right? The culture and context of our times. Because there will be times when others won't want to hear sound teaching and they won't want to hear that enduring truth. They'll prefer messages that tell them what they want to hear and what's pleasant to hear rather than what they need to hear. 
right? They'll follow leaders and teachers that tell them, follow your own desires, not God's commands. They'll listen to voices that tell them that God will give you your every worldly desire if you obey, instead of telling them the deeper truth that God is calling them into something so much greater than that, but at a deep cost. Or maybe they'll just doom scroll endlessly through algorithms that are designed to feed their minds things that are comfortable and familiar instead of wrestling with truth that ultimately draws us in closer to Jesus. Right, there's, there's a bigger application here than the sermons we listen to or the podcasts we follow. This is a warning to us of who our influences are in an age where the loftiest goal of many people is to be an influencer. We need to be alert and discerning of the times and trends. Not to be intimidated by them, not to conform to them, and not to be influenced by them. Right, don't water down, don't compromise. Don't avoid the word of God to please people or avoid persecution. Preach the word. Fourth, the way Paul describes it is it means to keep your head in all situations, enduring hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. That means be clear-minded, be focused on what Jesus has called you to, to the commission and mission of heaven. It means to not be distracted or discouraged by temporary or worldly things that we encounter, but to set our minds on Christ and things above. It means to expect and accept suffering as part of our calling, as a way of sharing in Christ's sufferings and glory. And it means to do the work of an evangelist, that is to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Jesus, to lead them to faith and repentance and discipleship. To fulfill our ministry means to complete all the tasks and responsibilities that God has charged us with as believers and followers of Jesus. You know, as Paul neared the end of his life, he was able to reflect on it without a whole lot of regret. He looked back and thought about his present reality being at the end of his life. His past story, his history, where he faithfully followed the calling God gave him and then looked forward to the final reward that he was anticipating receiving in the future, which is what we'll talk about next. Let's continue on, verses six through eight. Paul writes, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul knows that his life was coming to an end, or at least he must have a sense for it in what he's writing. He compares himself to a drink offering, a sacrificial altar or sacrificial offering that was poured out on the altar as a sign of devotion to God. Now, I, I did a little bit of digging on this, and there were two places in the Old Testament where I could find a drink offering required. One is with the sacrifice of atonement as a part of repentance and response to sin. And the other occurred with the barley harvest and was symbolic that the whole harvest belonged to the Lord. And maybe Paul is referring to the barley harvest by reminding Timothy that the entirety of our lives belong to the Lord. But I really think Paul's probably referencing this offering of atonement, which was by far the more common offering given. I think Paul intends to remind Timothy that there is a cost to following the Lord well, which is consistent with what he had written previously in this section of the letter. 
Paul also says the time for his departure is near. Now, departure could literally be translated as loosen or untie. And the context it was usually used in was tents and ships, which are two things that Paul would have known a whole lot about as a traveler and a tent maker by trade. Paul's either saying that he's ready to pack up his earthly life or he's saying that he's ready to sail away from this world. But he's not afraid of dying. He's confident in his eternal destiny. Now, Paul looks back on his life and he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. He uses three metaphors to describe his life, right? Fight, race, trust. He's fought against the enemies of the gospel. Now, to be clear, there are enemies of the gospel, both external and internal. The enemy of the gospel is anything that would want to take the place of Jesus in our lives. It's inside of us. It's the part of us that wants us to disobey God, to live apart from him. The fear that makes us shrink back from our calling. The pride that deceives us into thinking that we'll get more joy from sin than following Jesus. But it's outside of us too. All the things that distract, that prioritized over Jesus, right? The latest trend or hobby or priority. But people, people are never the enemy of the gospel. The gospel is good news for everyone and it's available to anyone. Paul has run the course that God has set before him without giving up, without turning to a different course. He's kept the faith that was entrusted to him without compromise, without abandonment of his calling. He's been faithful and he's kept his life fixed rightly on Jesus and what Jesus had called him to. Paul looks forward to his reward and says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He uses that image of a crown, a wreath given to victors of athletic contests and military battles. Right? Paul himself expects to receive a crown, a recognition of his faithfulness and obedience to God's will. He knows that this crown isn't based on his own work or his own worth, but on God's grace and on Jesus' righteousness. He knows that this crown isn't just for him, but for everybody who loves Christ, eagerly waits for his return. Now, the rest of chapter four is kind of specific instructions to Timothy about certain individuals that Paul had encountered along his ministry. And it reads almost like a ledger of appreciation for people. Right? Paul refers to some people as highly useful and about other people's, he says, may the Lord repay him for what he has done, along with just about every possible thing in between that spectrum. And, you know, it's easy to skip over this section of scripture, and we're, we're kind of going to skip over this section this morning, because we don't know these people. The specific instructions about the specific people probably don't seem super relevant to us today, but Paul includes it for a reason to remind Timothy about the people they are doing ministry with and for. And that, that's relevant for us today. The gospel is never meant to be an academic intellectual exercise or a solitary activity that we pursue alone in a monastery up in the mountains. I know, life with Jesus is lived with others in community. The gospel is for all people 
And life with Jesus is meant to be lived alongside other believers. Paul talks specifically about how other people in the church had supported his ministry and advanced the gospel alongside him. How the actions of other people had harmed his ministry, that in their selfishness they abandoned him, did not stay true to the calling that Jesus had put on them. I hope that's never said of us, that we abandoned the calling, that we didn't do everything possible to stay true to the charge of Christ. It's essential that our understanding of proclaiming the word, pursuing a crown, stays grounded in the context of loving other people, living life with them. Right? The gospel that, that God loves us, that he sent his son for us so that we could be reunited with him after our evil actions separated us from him, right? that gospel is about what God has done for people. And so it's fitting that the calling of the gospel is also done with people. Now friends, we, we have a charge and we have a crown. We're called to preach the word to be prepared in season and out of season, to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience, careful instruction. We too are called to discharge all the duties of our ministry, whatever they may be. And we too have a crown of, righteous waiting, crown of righteousness waiting for us with the Lord, the righteous judge, who will award it to us on that last day. We're called to it alongside other believers. And we are at our most effective when we serve arm in arm alongside them. So let's follow Paul's example. Let's heed the charge. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel or afraid of suffering for Christ's sake. Let's not be deceived by false teachers or distracted by worldly desires. Let's not grow weary or lose heart in doing what's good. Let's fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. And let's look forward to the day when we get to see Jesus face to face and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. From him, we will receive that crown of righteousness, which we'll give right back to him. Because in the end, it was his work in us and not something that we did in our own strength. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we pray that, that your word would be impressed on our hearts. God, and that our desire to faithfully preach it to others would be one that you would give us. Lord, as we, as we live our lives, as we go forward, may it be said of us that we were true to the calling that you placed on us, that we faithfully executed the, dutistry, the duties of ministry, that we did the work of an evangelist, and that we preached the word at all times when it was easy, when it was hard. Lord, we know your word is good, that it has the ability to build us up, to teach us how to live, and to teach us how not to live. Lord, would you guide us in that? Would you give us the strength to walk in it? And would you help us remember, help us stay focused, that at the end of all of it, we will see you face to face and receive from you a reward. We love you, God, and we love each other. Help us encourage each other to live rightly for you. In your name we pray.